0: And Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, ask that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see the things you mean to say to us. Lord, help us take away from this morning no more and no less than you mean to speak to each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get back into Revelation 2, by way of introduction... Uh, you remember we said there's very little new in the book of Revelation. and It's so true that you'll read one section and you remember that it refers to something, some good old story out of the Old Testament. I don't know that this is a good old story, but before we get into the comparison that Jesus makes relative to this church, if you wanted to search in the Old Testament for kind of an arch enemy, you know, God's arch enemy, or the most wicked or the most vile person, certainly one of the leading candidates would be a woman name of Jezebel, and you can read her story in First and 2 Kings. This woman, <clears throat> her name is, we would have been pronounced something more like Yezah Baal, and she was the daughter of Eth Baal. And of course, Baal is the name of the false god that was worshipped in that corner of the world. So she's named for Baal from a father who's named for Baal. Her father was the king of Tyre and Sidon. So she's a princess. She's daughter of a king that worships Baal. And then she marries a king. And this, this, as we'll see, this really wicked woman marries this really wicked king and they're a good fit for one another in all the wrong ways. Of King Ahab, her husband, it was said that no king before him in Israel was more wicked. This is during the days when the kingdom is separated. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. He's in the north. And of Ahab, God says, he was more wicked than any king before him. And then, as if that was a small thing, one verse says, if that wasn't enough, the worst thing he ever did was married Jezebel. All the other wickedness, that was bad, but even worse, he married this woman. Well, when she came to Israel, she brought with her the worship of her God, Baal. And so when she came to Israel... She told her husband, I want to see my God honored in your kingdom. And so they began in earnest the worship of Baal throughout Israel. And these female fertility poles and these statues of Baal were erected all over the country of Israel. Positively, she set up all this stuff so that folks would worship Baal. The flip side, too, was she had all God's prophets murdered. She is the antihero in the story of Elijah, and you remember he has the priests of Baal come and... Mount Carmel, it's the great test. Who's really God? And when Elijah's God wins, Jezebel says, "You're going to be dead." And he runs and he's afraid. And on one hand we say, "Ah, well you know, why are you afraid?" But she had murdered every other known prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Anyone that had spoken for the true God, she had murdered. Her husband Ahab looked at a vineyard he wanted, and they inquired, "Would the guy sell? No thanks. So, Naboth, Jezebel, has falsely accused and stoned to death so she can give his vineyard to her husband. This gal gave Wicked a bad name. She was as bad as they get. She was as bad as they get. We don't want to be associated with Jezebel. And you know, since that time, she's around, just say, 800 BC. So, for the last 2,800 years or so, Jezebel means a faithless woman. It means some woman you don't want to trust. And it dates to this woman. She gave Jezebel a bad name. And with that as our introduction, let's look at the letter to the church at Thyatira. This is Revelation 2. This letter is the longest of the seven to the churches. We will not go through all of it today. We'll only take the first half, both because of its length and because this letter, unlike the others, it nicely divides in half because God's actually speaking to two different groups within the same church. So we'll only take the first half today, the first half of the letter, to Thyatira. Now, if you remember on the previous letters, we went up the modern-day coast of Turkey from Ephesus to Smyrna to Perga. We're coming inland now. We're going southeast. It's a trade route, essentially, and it goes from uh, Thyatira to Smyrna to Laodicea. So we're moving inland. Thyatira, as a city, was a smaller city than any of the three previous we've looked at it was still fairly wealthy. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, Thyatira was well known for one thing predominantly, and it was this was the best place in the known world to dye garments. And I'm not sure what the scoop on this is. It had something to do with the water in this region. And so in the book of Acts, it says Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics, and where was she from? This place was known for, sometimes in Scripture, what we translate purple would actually be red. This is also interesting that that this town is known for dyeing red garments. That's what it's known for. It's the best place to dye garments red. Also, we've said through each letter that it not only appears that Jesus is addressing a specific group locally here, but also he seems to be characterizing a specific period in the history of the church, You know, as the church goes through the years, this would appear to correspond to the age in the church from about the Dark Ages up to the Reformation period through the Middle Ages. And if you look at the history of the church in this period, this is the time when more and more pagan practices are baptized and brought into the church, and you see more and more the veneration of statues and praying to people instead of God. This is the period in which that's brought in, just as this period which we'll see in Thyatira corresponds to our eyes being diverted from the true God to false gods instead. Starting at verse 18 this morning, Jesus addresses this church and says, To the angel or to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, When Jesus addresses them, the first thing that he reminds them is that he is deity. He is God himself, God the Son. He is not some local Joe who's addressing them. He is the unique God who addresses them. When he describes himself, he says, I'm the one with the eyes of fire. And you remember this goes back to chapter 1 where Jesus uh, is seen in his glory by John. And John tells us what he looks like. And one of the things was he's got eyes of fire. He's got eyes of fire. And I'm sure Jesus is reminding the church here fire consumes things, doesn't it? It renders them down to their essential element. Fire, you can't hide things from fire. In other words, this is the one whose eyes are piercing and penetrating and consuming so that he sees things as they really are. You can't fool him. When he looks at you and I, he doesn't just see the outside, he sees the inside. He doesn't just say what we say, see what we say. He sees what we do. He sees our heart. He sees things as they really are. And when he says his feet are like burnished bronze, you remember that in Scripture, bronze is the metal that typically is associated with judgment. Bronze is the metal associated with judgment. Remember Israel in the wilderness complaining? God sends serpents into the nation, and they bite them, and part of the remedy is... Moses is to make a bronze serpent. There's a bronze serpent on the pole. The bronze was an indication God was judging them. This was a period of judgment. Remember that at the temple or at the tabernacle, if you wanted to come to God, what did you face? Right off the bat, you faced an altar of bronze because we're sinners before a holy God. And you've got to pass through stages of judgment before you could see God bronze altar, a bronze laver of water for the priest to be cleansed before they could approach God. So bronze is the metal that represents judgment. So Jesus says, I'm the one, I'm God, uniquely God. I see things as they really are, and where I walk, I bring righteous, knowing, judgment. I bring judgment. He continues, I know your deeds or your work, and your love, your faith or faithfulness, loyalty. I know your service, ministry. I know your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. You remember in each letter, whenever he can, Jesus praises those in the church for the positives, for what those, those things they're doing that he appreciates and can bless or reward. And this is a great list, and this is a list if Jesus spoke to us and said the same things, we would feel like we're doing pretty well. And they were. There was some reality in the church, which we'll see more of next time, related to the second group within the church Jesus addresses. But there was real spiritual faithfulness, service, work. When he says your deeds of late are greater than at first, I assume something like the depth or breadth of your ministry now is greater than it's ever been before. So there's some real and genuine praiseworthy elements in this church at Thyatira. But as always, Jesus doesn't stop with that because there's corrections that they need to hear. At verse 20, he says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality. They eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So when Jesus addresses at a critical level the church at Thyatira, he says, what I've got against you is that you are tolerating this woman, Jezebel. Now Jezebel almost certainly is not this woman's real name. But Jesus nicknames her, gives her a new name, as it were, because he wants her and everyone else in the church to know what he thinks of her. Jezebel. This immediately goes back to this wicked woman we know of from First and Second Kings. This woman who came into God's nation, Israel, and corrupted those who w- might have otherwise followed God. And she gets them to worship her God, Baal, instead. This corrupting influence. So Jesus says, as a church, you are tolerating a woman, and it's assumed that this is a a real person, a real female in their midst. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. It says that she calls herself a prophetess, and this is probably important in this sense. You remember 1 Timothy 2, and Revelation is the last book written. So anything we quote from the New Testament has already been around for a while. 1 Timothy 2, Paul said, women are not to teach and they're not to exercise authority in the church. Women are called on to teach and lead other women. Titus 2 makes that clear. Not to say that there's no leadership role for them at all. But in 1 Timothy 2, it says, I do not allow women to teach or to exercise authority. We could say lead men. So women did not teach or lead men in general. However there were female prophets. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, and 14. So that while a woman couldn't teach or exercise authority, she could prophetically speak at the church gatherings. And this woman apparently, as a, with being a prophetess as a pretext, she actually ends up teaching and leading the church. So she made a claim to be a prophet, And the effect was so that she could do exactly what God had said she was not to do, teach and lead. And the teaching and leading was teaching and leading God's servants to go astray, to commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. We've talked about this a little bit before. You know, in some ways our culture is not all that different than the the towns and the churches we looked at from 2,000 years ago. But, you know, Joe gets off work on Friday, and Joe goes to the neighborhood, the corner, temple, because they were everywhere. And Joe buys a goat or a sheep, and he has it offered to Baal. And then Joe and his buddy sit around, they eat the sacrifice offered to their false god, and they drink to excess and get drunk, and then they look for someone to spend the night with. Now, if you put it in those, notes, it doesn't sound too unlike... Our culture does it. I mean, if you exchange temple for nightclubs and bars, Joe goes today to the bar, eats to excess, drinks to excess, and then hopes to go home and spend the night in somebody's bed. This is what they were doing. And Jezebel, this gal in the church, is the one leading this. So just like Jezebel in the Old Testament corrupting those who would otherwise have followed God, this is what this gal was doing. And if you remember, go back to the letter at Ephesus, Jesus said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. And you remember then we went to Perga and we found out that Nicolaitanism was the same thing as the teaching of Balaam. And it was the church being corrupted by the pagan society around it. It was God's people joining with those who were not God's people in idolatry and immorality. And you remember back in Perga, Perga was entertaining the notion. It said you kind of buy into the teaching. We talked about this. In the theater of your mind, you're giving the option of participating in this immorality and idolatry. And Jesus said to them at that point, you need to stop right now. Repent right now before you act on these. Repent at the level of your thoughts in the theater of your mind. Stop that thing at the first step. Well, at Thyatira, they hadn't heeded that. They didn't stop at the thought. They went headlong into the practice. So these guys have followed this gal's lead, and she's told them through one way or another, hey, it's okay to go down and join those folks on Friday night at the local temple and eat a little meat. There's nothing wrong with meat. Enjoy a little uh, wine or beer. There's nothing wrong with a little wine or beer. And it's okay, you know, you can evangelize when you're shacking up with that woman or that guy. It's all okay. This is where they'd gone. This is where they were at. Led by this gal. They, hadn't, they didn't not only hate the thing, thought about the thing, they're, they're headlong practicing the thing. And Jezebel's leading the way. The most striking phrase in this whole letter to Thyatira is Jesus' words in verse 21. He's called this woman Jezebel. We know historically what Jezebel was like and what it looked like. In verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Now just think about this for a minute. If someone came into your home and corrupted your spouse or your children, how would you feel? What would you think about towards them? If someone has come in and intentionally led someone you know and love astray into a way that you know is going to hurt them, a dishonorable, shameful thing, what would you want to do for that person? To that person? What would your thoughts be? This is striking. Jesus says of this wicked woman in the church in Thyatira, compared with this wicked woman, perhaps arguably the wickedest woman in the Bible, Jesus' first words are, I gave her time to repent. This, this kind of blows, blows me away. Uh, this would not have been my response. And Jesus loves his church. And, you know, in fact, James says don't be too many teachers because, you know, when you're teaching and you're standing up and you're leading Jesus' church, he says you'll be held to a higher, a more stringent standard. You'll incur greater judgment. This is a scary thing. It's a, it's a serious thing. Well, this gal's leading. She's not supposed to be in the first place. And she's leading God's servants in the wrong direction. And Jesus' first words about her here are, I gave her Time to repent. I like this. You know, as ready as I would be to rush to judgment in this situation, Jesus doesn't. And one of the things that strikes you in both Testaments, old and new, is that God is, primarily describes himself as holy. And that means he's entirely unique and he's separate entirely from sin. That's the number one descriptor of God. The number two is, God describing himself is, he is merciful. He has faithful love. He has loving kindness, a, a love that pursues us day after day, week after week, year after year, etc. And it says of judgment, Jesus tells us he's got feet of bronze. Where he walks, he brings righteous judgment. But in Isaiah, he says of himself, judgment, that is when I must come in and judge the wicked, It is my strange work. It is not the thing that most typifies me or my heart. I do it, and I do it well, but it's not what I love to do. In fact, thinking of people dying without Christ, you know, Paul says in 1 Timothy that God desires all men to repent, to come to the knowledge of the truth, to be saved. That's God's heart. He does judge, and he is good at it, but he wants people to come to life. In Ezekiel, it says of God, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What pleases God? Life, repentance, coming to him. So to this incredibly wicked, evil woman, doing wickedness against God's people, against those he loves, Jesus says, I gave her time to change her mind. I gave her time to repent. So if you and I move from... Perga, where we're thinking about sin, to Thyatira, where we've jumped headlong into it. This is encouraging. What do you say to someone who says, I didn't stop at the thought of sin. I've run headlong into it. I'm so deep in it now, I don't know the way out. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. You know, if Jesus says to Jezebel, Jezebel, repent, I'm giving you time to repent, he says the same thing to you and I. And you know, the truth is, in one area or another, James says we all sin in many ways. In one area or another, you and I always move beyond the thought level of sin to the action level of sin. We all sin. And sometimes that sin compounds and it builds on itself till we get to the point where we don't know the way out. We feel so defiled or we feel so ashamed or we feel so unholy. It's as if, Lord, would you ever take us back at this point. Could you ever make our life right again? And Jesus' words to Jezebel should encourage you and I. He says, I'm giving you time to repent, to change your mind, to change your actions, and to turn around. I love this. I love this. If you think of perhaps the most famous story in all the Bible is out of Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. And it's the story of a father waiting for his son to repent and come home. That's the whole point. And you remember Jesus is telling it to Pharisees who want righteous judgment. They want God to walk in with feet of brass. And Jesus tells them the story that God does have feet of brass, but you know what? He prefers mercy to judgment. And that story illustrates the father's heart towards the son was always, please repent, turn around, and be restored. And he is. And he is. Or in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, God has Hosea, his prophet, Mary Gomer, a prostitute. Why? Why? because he wants a living demonstration to the nation of Israel of his love for his faithless, fickle people. So Hosea marries a faithless woman. And Gomer is faithless. And she's unfaithful. Time and time again. And at one of the climax points in the book, Gomer is up on the public auction block probably naked in the public square, being sold as a slave. She is so far down. And guess who buys her back? Hosea, her husband. He could have legitimately turned away and walked away, absolutely. But God was telling Israel, and he was showing Israel his kind of love for them. And it was when they had plumbed the depths of faithlessness, he buys them back. He redeems them. And to Jezebel, God says, I gave her time to repent. You know, it is always and absolutely best to repent at the the point of the thought or the temptation. Far better. Far better. You know, because even though there's repentance, when you and I give ourselves to sin... Sin always brings death. can't be otherwise. It must. It's a universal. Sin brings death. We experience death when we sin. In time, sometimes the consequences of sin follow us. Sometimes for a little while, sometimes for years, sometimes for the rest of our life. The consequences of sin. So we we don't want to entertain these things. But you know, no matter how far down the road we get, we can turn to God and call out and say, God, I'm sorry. I blew it. Forgive me. I want to come home. And he does. He welcomes you back. On the flip side of this, I want to, as encouraging as this is, I want to give a warning with this because I don't want you to think that we have carte blanche. That is, that I'll sin, I'll repent at my leisure, and God will always take me back there are two passages in the New Testament that say, while God loves repentance and he extends his hand all day long to stubborn, stiff-hearted people like you and I, there are times at which he says, enough is enough. And in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, God said, enough is enough. When the church that claimed Jesus' name was sitting down to honor Jesus Christ in remembering his death and resurrection at the Lord's Supper they had turned it into a drunken gluttony. So they're overeating, and they're getting drunk, honoring Jesus, and they're doing it while Christians Jesus died for sitting next to them are so poor they don't have anything to eat and nothing to drink. And God was not pleased. And so Paul tells them it is for this reason. You've eaten and drunk judgment to yourself. You've asked Jesus to come in with feet of brass and judge you because of the way you've dishonored him and dishonored his people claiming his name at these drunk fests. So some of them were sick. Jesus had judged them with sickness. Paul says the reason some are sick is you're being judged. He goes beyond that and says some of you sleep. And this isn't an afternoon nap. This is death. Some of you have been judged and taken by God through death out of the church at Corinth because he said enough is enough. 1 John 5, it says there's a sin that leads to death. It it doesn't fully explain what that means and I'm not going to get into that this morning. But the point in that passage is Sometimes we sin in a way or to a degree that God says enough is enough. And that sin to death means God takes us out. Now, I love the passage in Philippians where Paul says to depart and be with Christ is gain. So on one hand, it sounds like, hey, I sin, God takes me home. What's the downside? Because to depart and be with Christ is far better. Well, that's true on one hand. I like to think of it like this. We're in a football game and if I'm on the sideline with the coach, my dad, that's a good thing because I like my dad and I like to be with him. But if the game's on and my dad wants me in the game, I belong in the game. But if I am choosing willfully time after time to not play by the rules and not follow my coach dad's instructions, what does he do? He benches me. He calls me out of the game and he sits me on the bench and yeah, I'm with my dad on the sidelines but not the way dad wants me and not the way I want. He's benched me. He's taken me out of the game. I don't get to participate and we're going to win and I'll get to celebrate with everyone else but I won't get the kind of reward. I, I won't have the involvement that my dad coach wanted for me. So going home early is not a good thing. It's his judgment. He wants us here. He wants to use us here. And he wants to reward us for that later. But there comes a time when God says, guys, I've given you time to repent. And I've spoken to you about it. And like Jezebel, you haven't wanted to. You've said no thanks. And so I must walk in with my feet of brass and say enough is enough and and bring in judgment. And he does that. So that in Hebrews... The writer says, when you hear God's voice today, don't harden your heart. Don't say, I've got tomorrow and next week and next year to repent. Repent today. When you're in a place, you know God doesn't want you to. Don't entertain the thought, tomorrow's good enough. Heed his voice today. Don't presume on his mercy or his goodness. Heed his voice today. Jezebel said no thanks to repentance, and Jesus says judgment's going to follow up. Verse 22, he said, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence or death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according To your deeds. Jezebel committed immorality in bed. Jesus says, I'm going to throw her in bed. It's going to be a little different. It's a bed of judgment. I still like, though, look at verse 22. She's going to be thrown into great tribulation and her children, it says, unless they repent of her deeds. God says to Jezebel, I've given her time to repent. She said, no thanks. You who've been following her in immorality, I'm giving you time to repent now. I'm calling you to repentance. But if you don't, I will kill her children, her followers, those who are doing the same sin with her, with death. I will judge you. I will walk in with feet of brass and you will be judged. And all the church will know that I'm the one who searches the minds and hearts. I'm the one with the eyes of fire. I see things as they are. I give to each one according to your deeds. I walk in with feet of brass and judge things as they really are. The story of Jezebel ends in 2 Kings 9. God says to this Jezebel, I'm going to throw you into a bed. And in 2 Kings 9, Jezebel gets thrown too. She gets thrown out a window. When King Yehu, new king, rides up to Jezebel's habitat, he looks up at the window and he says, who's on my side? And he tells them, "Chucker." And they throw her out the window, and she falls to a gruesome death on the ground below. Yehu goes in and has dinner and a drink and refreshes himself. And he remembers the body of Queen Jezebel lying outside on the ground, and he says, you know, she was the daughter of a king. We should bury her. Go and see to it. When they go out, all that's left of wicked Queen Jezebel is a bit of the skull, the hands, And the feet. Because the dogs had eaten her body. And they remembered at that time that God in judgment had said, Jezebel's body will be eaten by the dogs. They'd forgotten all about it. But God's judgment on her came through. She outlived Ahab. She outlived another two kings. But under King Yehu, the new king, she fell to a wretched, wretched end. The day of repentance was over and the day of judgment had come. Let me leave you with a positive illustration. Jezebel's a good warning, but let me leave you with a a more positive illustration. That is, let me tell you the great story of wicked, evil, King Manasseh. Remember, King Ahab and Jezebel, they're up in the north in Israel. King Manasseh is in the south in Judah King Manasseh's dad is one of the godliest greatest kings in the history of Israel king Hezekiah Manasseh's descendant is also one of the greatest kings in Israel's history king Josiah Manasseh however is the wickedest king ever to sit at the throne in Judah In fact he was so bad he gave pagans a bad name It says that he was worse than the Amorites that God drove out in front of Israel. He was worse. He gave pagans a bad name. In the northern country of Israel, they had their own little uh, semi-temple. It wasn't the temple at Jerusalem. In Judah, Manasseh had the temple in Jerusalem. He set up the worship of Baal in God's temple and in the courts. He set up altars to all the false gods he wanted to at the temple. He offered his own son in fire to Baal and Moloch on these heated statues. He sacrificed his own children on these heated statues. He filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood, it says in one passage. He was the wickedest king you could imagine, King Manasseh. He reigned 55 years. You'd think he's wicked, God will judge him, God gave him a long time, 55 wretched years. But there was a time in his reign in which God had said, Enough is enough. And so the Assyrians came in and they captured Manasseh and they led him away to Assyria in chains of bronze, chains of judgment. And wicked, evil King Manasseh in prison in Assyria does something. Do you know what he does? He calls out to God for mercy. He repents. He changes his mind. And you know what God does? God forgives him and restores him. In fact, Manasseh is freed, goes home, sits on the throne again, and leads Judah to restoration. They remove the altars, and the gods, and the practices that he had led them in earlier. And there is a restoration under formerly wicked, evil, King Manasseh. Because even in the depths of his depravity, he called out to God for mercy. He repented. And God honored that, and forgave him, and restored him. And whether it's Jezebel, whom God gave time to repent, or wicked King Manasseh, you know, for you and I, if we're still drawing breath on this earth, we're still candidates for repentance and mercy. And if we've moved beyond the entertaining sin in the mind stage to jump and headlong into it, we can still, like these folks at Thyatira, or like Manasseh, we can still say, Lord, I've blown it big time. Forgive me. I've changed my mind. I want to be restored. I want to live again. Let's pray. Lord, as we move from looking at your word together to declaring your praises and your worth In a moment, it's fitting that we confess our sins before you. Lord, just as the priest at the temple came to the altar first and to the water to be cleansed, Lord, we confess before you that apart from the worthiness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sinners without God and without hope. Father, we thank you that the penalty of sin, death, was fully met in our Savior, Jesus, on the cross. That, Father, the great altar, the cross on Calvary, has atoned for our sins. It's covered our sins, Lord, with the blood of your Son. Lord, we would just come to your Son this morning and ask your forgiveness for the sin we entertain in our mind and for the sin we commit. God, we don't present any righteousness of our own to you. We plead the worth of your Son, his sacrifice and his resurrection. Father, I pray that we can sing your praises not only as those who are redeemed, but those who are cleansed, those whose consciences are clean, who can stand before you in the righteousness of Christ and say, you are worthy Lord, help us to honor you in the way we live our life. Help us to repent of the things that do not please you and the things that are all tied to sin and from sin to death. Thanks that you're a God who loves mercy and loving kindness and faithful love. Lord, we cling to your promises. We love you, Lord. We declare your praises in Jesus' name. Amen.